Good morning, church. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Hey, this morning, we're going to continue our, our walk through um, Ecclesiastes. Yep, it's working. Okay. We're going to continue our, our walk through Ecclesiastes, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Ecclesiastes. I'm going to ask you to do something a little different this morning. Go to chapter 7 and mark it, and then go to chapter 10 and mark it, so we can, we're going to be flipping back through chapters 7 and 10 today as we look at this book. And as we go through this study, we need to know that the author, this preacher king who wrote this book, he is on this spiritual quest. He is going through life and he's trying to find meaning in life. From the very beginning of this book, he has been trying to find out what is the meaning of life. We're in chapter 7 and he has failed. Right? He has not found it yet. He's trying to figure out what matters in life. And if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, we started with wisdom. And he said, hey, there's, there's no meaning in wisdom. Wisdom does not make life worth living. That's kind of strange because Ecclesiastes is known as wisdom literature, right? This is a, a book on wisdom. And in the very beginning, he says, hey, it's kind of useless. Don't worry about it. But then as we get into chapter 7, guess what? He finds himself back at wisdom, right? He's reevaluating this whole wisdom thing. He, nothing else he has worked. And for the next Four chapters, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, he's talking about wisdom. It is this loosely organized, right? It's, it's, if you're type A, if you're the type of person that wants A, B, C, this is not fun section to be in because he kind of is all over the place. But as we look at these chapters, we can actually see, or these, not chapters, these sections, these four, there's this uh, key theme, and we see a contrast between wisdom and folly as we look at these chapters. We see in chapter 7, he talks about how actually wisdom can make our lives better. 11 times in chapter 7, he says, if you act in wisdom, if you do things wisely, things will be better for you. In chapter 8, he actually addresses the wicked, and he spends some time on this. So guess what? We're going to talk about that next week. So I'm going to set chapter 8 aside to next week. In chapter 9, he deals with facing our own death. And he talks about wisdom and folly and, and hey, that, that day is coming. And so guess what? That's kind of a big topic. So we're going to set that aside to do in two weeks from today. And then when we get to chapter 10, he continues with these proverbs that are contrasting wisdom and folly or wisdom and foolishness. And we're going to be looking at chapters 7 and 10 this morning. And so uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is, What do these chapters have to do about, how do they fit into his argument? How do they fit in with the previous chapters, right? We get this unassociated list of parables and proverbs, and so where is he going with this? How do they support his argument? How does this fit in with the flow of his argument, right? And if you remember what is his argument, that life is nothing but just, it's just a mist, it's just meaningless, that's the point he's been making up to now. But because we cheated and we read the end of the book first, the first week, we know that he has been making an argument. He's, his argument through this whole book is that the fool looks at life in the wrong way and that the wise man looks at life the right way. So the first question should be, well, what's the wrong and right way? And the, the wrong way is somebody who looks at their life apart from living with God. And 
the right way or the wise way is somebody who, who looks at life through the lens of, of God who created the world, right? That there's something more than just us. There's something bigger out there. So they look at everything through these lenses that there is a creator, that there is a God who loves us, that there is a God who loves you, that there's a God who cares for you, that there's a God who is sovereign over all things. And the author is continuing this quest for knowledge. And in these next few sections, we're going to investigate many things. He's going to look at many things, and I'm going to apologize to you now. We're not going to read all of 7. We're not going to read all of 10. We're going to kind of hit some high points, and then I'm going to give you homework. Go read 7 and 10. So if you're taking notes, homework, read 7 and 10. But there are some things that as you read, you will see that he talks about. He talks about the value of a good name, right? What your last name is and who you are and the value that comes with that. He talks about the way of adversity actually brings wisdom and prosperity. Brings more wisdom than prosperity, I should say. He talks about how to accept what God has made crooked. Right? Maybe that was uh, 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 God's actions on that and how we have to deal and how we have to process with that. He talks about the words that we speak and the things that we do and he investigates. He looks into all of these topics and we'll see that this is not just random words that he is putting here, but this is actually built on this foundation that he laid at the very, very beginning of the book. In uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so as he's giving us these wisdom proverbs, these wisdom parables, these are things that he observed. These are things that he has learned. In the next few minutes, we're going to take some time to look at some of this text and look at how he compares and contrasts wisdom and folly. So we're going to jump right into this. I was just telling somebody that this could be like a series in its own. But we're going to not do it a series in its own. We're going to do it today. So have your Bibles. I cheated. I've got my notes here, and I've got two Bibles, so I don't have to spend time flipping back and forth, okay? But we're going to jump right in. Here's the first thing we learn, is that death, right? Death reveals the emptiness of fools, but it leads the wise to life. If we go ahead in chapter uh, 7, verse 1, we're going to read a few of these verses. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about a funeral. He's talking about going to a funeral, a celebration of life, a memorial service. We call these all these different things. But he says when the wise go to these things, what do they do? They think about their own life. Right? They, they, they take stock of what is going on in their life. They, they look at their priorities, maybe even how they're treating people. But more importantly, they look at what their own relationship with God is. What is their relationship with the Creator? Right? And that's actually one of the purposes of a memorial service, of a celebration of life. You know, one of the purposes is that we celebrate the life and the relationships of the person that was deceased. The other thing that we do is that we partner, we come around that family and we help them through that mourning process. But the third thing is the, the service prepares the living for their own death. 
Right? It is something that we should think about. It's something that we, we should look to. It's to remind us that we don't have a say in the when or the where that death will come. We just know it's going to come. We can't say how it's going to come, but we know that one day we will face death. And so when the, the wise person goes to the house of mourning, he starts thinking about these things in his own mind. He starts thinking about these things in himself. He starts checking his own heart. He starts evaluating his own heart. When the fool comes to these things, their heart is far from the end. They're focused on the here and now. They're focused on maybe the money that they're going to get. They're focused maybe on the party that's going to happen. Right? They're thinking maybe even not a bad thing. They're thinking of friends and family they haven't seen in a long time, but they're not looking at their own lives. And church, if I'm going to be honest with you, I've been at funerals. I've officiated funerals where families have fought over money, where families have fought over materials, and these things won't last for, for the most part, they're going to be gone or forgotten in a matter of years, if not months. But families sit and they fight. That is truly foolish behavior at a funeral. And it absolutely breaks my heart. However, I have also been at a funeral service, at a memorial service, where somebody gave their life to Christ. Because they started looking out and realized that this is only temporary. Right, That this is all going to end and what's going to happen after that. And maybe people have said, well, I believe there's a creator. But until they faced death for that first time, they never had to think about it. And at this funeral service, they took stock of their own life. And they realized that this life is just a mist or it's a vapor, as the author of Ecclesiastes continuously refers to. And at the funeral, they, they know that this is the end of all mankind. That they're not going to escape it. And their heart is stirred, and they are drawn to their creator. And so when we talk about this funeral, this passage, what this author is saying is that the wise, they go here, and they reflect on death, and they are led to life. They are led to know Jesus. And as we continue in chapter 7, verse 7, we see another truth in there. We see that trials reveal anger in fools, but they lead the wise to love, joy, and peace. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 7, it says this, says, Surely oppression, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Here's the thing. A wise person does not look at trials and say, how do I get through this? What's the fastest way to get through this? How do I ignore this? Right? A wise person, they know that the end of the matter is better than the beginning. Why do we know it? That's the, the question he puts here. Because at the end, and sometimes much after the end, when we look back, we understand what the purpose of God's way was during that time in ways that we didn't understand when we were going through the trial. Right? How many times have you said in your own life when you look back at something, thank God that turned out the way that it did? And it was not the way that you would have picked. You've heard the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. And that's what he's talking about here. We go through these things, and oftentimes we look at a trial, maybe something that we would say, oh, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, and we go through this trial and we see what we learned. 
We see how God shaped us in our lives. We see how maybe God protected us from our own self. We looked at a, a trial that we just fought and fought and fought and fought against only to realize that God was protecting us. Maybe it was a trial in your life. And I would love to do a study on this, but how many people were at the lowest part of their life? How many people were in the, the worst part or the, the hardest trial in their life and that is what led them to Christ? And if that is true, that is the best trial your life has ever had, right? That is the best thing that you could have ever hoped for, and that is the one thing you should praise God, because it is that trial that not only saved your life, it is that trial that gave you life, and we should look at that. It's in these trials that we learn of our need for God. It's in these trials that we develop our dependency on God. It's in these trials that we grow in our faithfulness and our patience and our self-control and our gentleness. Do those sound familiar? Right, And when we grow in those, those lead us to growth in our love and our peace and our joy. Right? Those are important things. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Those are things that we should be striving for. And we see that in trials, God uses to grow us in those areas. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and say that every time I'm in a trial, I'm like, yes! <laughs> Another learning opportunity. Right? I can't, can't wait for this trial. But, but I'm going to be real, I hate going through trials. I hate going through tough times, I think like most of us. But I'm, I'm so grateful that on the backside, I can see where God worked in my life. I can see where God rounded some rough edges. I can see where God completely killed parts of me that needed to die. And that trial was simply because of me. A couple of years ago, I was going through a trial, and it was a really, really tough trial on me, and it was affecting my wife, and it was a trial that we were both carrying this burden, and a man that had been discipling me for many years, he said, what is God trying to teach you in this trial? And like a fool, I said, I don't know, but I've learned, let's be done with this. Right? I don't want, I don't want to do this anymore. And he said, no, 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 you're in a good spot. You need to sit there, and you need to ask God that question. What are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to grow me in this trial? Man, that's a, that's a great question and it changes the entire perspective of things and now as I can look back I can see that God was teaching me faithfulness in him teaching me to depend on him he was teaching me and growing me patience with with others my prayer life grew and my dependence on him grew and during that trial I came to know God's love for me and I came to know his love for the church in a, a much much deeper way and now that I could look back on that, I don't want to go through it again, but I can look back on it and be grateful for that trial, that time in my life. And so when we look at trials, I could, I could have gotten angry. I could have been mad. I could have said, hey, God, why me? I, I don't deserve this and all the other excuses that we throw in and just get angry with myself, get angry with God, get angry with other people. But that's the response of a fool. And so when we look at trials, we see that the trials will lead a fool to anger, but they'll lead the wise to a deeper relationship with God. So we need to remember that. Now let's go ahead and we're going to jump to, to chapter 10. I want to look at another comparison between fools and the wise. And this is specifically deals with the words that we speak. If we go to chapter 10, uh, verses 12 through 14. And it says this, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. See, here's the thing about our speech, is our speech is oftentimes an uh, acid test for our wisdom, right? When we, we look at speech, a fool's words are high in quantity, but a wise person's words are high in quality. And I want you to look at this. The, the, the point of this verse is not that wise speech will get us something. Sometimes people look at that first verse and they say the words of the wise man's mouth win him favor like I get something out of this. This is about me, but that's not what this is talking about. Oftentimes that same verse is translated that words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. Right, that we speak grace to other people, that we give things to other people. This isn't about what our words give us. This is about what our words give others. And a wise man's words give grace to those he speaks to. Right, a, a wise person, he offers grace. He offers verbal praises and audible thanksgiving to God. Not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of who God is. And his words speak with worship. His words speak with the, the words of God. A wise person uses more words of encouragement than words of criticism. A wise person speaks with gentleness, never in unrighteous anger. A wise person uses words of reconciliation. Simple words. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Hey, please forgive me. I'm going to tell you right now, teaching our kids to say the words, I'm sorry. The first, I didn't mean it. It doesn't matter if you mean it. Right? It doesn't matter if you mean it. It doesn't matter if you mean to hurt that person. It matters that you're sorry. Right? It does matter. If, if your intention was not to hurt that person, but you did, you still need to go say, I'm sorry. And I, I get so frustrated with my kids. Like, just say you're sorry. Just be, did you mean to do that? No, then just be sorry. But then I look at my own life, and when I mess up, it's super hard, and I don't know why, to go to my kids and say, hey, I messed up. Please forgive me. And God says, hey, it's simple. Just ask him for forgiveness. Just like you're teaching him to say um, you're sorry, you, you ask for forgiveness. Right? These are just simple words. A wise person can just speak these words of reconciliation. A wise person uses words of love and affection. Something as simple as saying, I love you. Right? Look, when you look at God and the audible times that he spoke to his son, what did he say? My beloved. Right? This is my son whom I love and I'm proud of you. Right, this is my son who I'm loved and I'm pleased in you. And just these simple words of love and affection speak volumes to those that you are speaking to. And since the words, the things that we speak are out of the abundance of our, our heart, right, it's the overflow of our heart. It's what our heart is. Wise speech requires a heart that is overflowing with the love of God. And so a wise person is pursuing God, trying to be like God. In other words, a wise person has the heart of Jesus and therefore demonstrates his grace when he speaks. Right? This is one of the hardest and most convicting things that we talk about is the words that come out of our mouth. Right? The church would rather talk about giving than they would about the words that we speak. Church, it is the, the words that we speak that show our heart and show if we have a heart of Christ or not. You've... Then it goes on to talk about foolish talk. He actually talks about foolish talk in this passage more than he talks about wise talk. 
But he says that the foolish talk flows from our inner character and our deficiency, and it results in irrational morality. But nonetheless, in verse 14, what does the fool keep doing? He keeps talking. He keeps talking. Maybe the more that I say, I will dig myself out of this. And he's just going deep. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. Just deeper and deeper and deeper. And you think, oh, no, 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 I'm going to say something smart. No, you're not. Just stop. Right? Have you ever heard that saying that it's better to be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt? Right? That's what he said. Just stop. A fool is concerned with how much they say, and they think somehow the more I say, the smarter I am. And we all know that's usually not the case. We all know. I know when I'm teaching, I can tell who has read and who hasn't by how much they talk. Because somehow when you're teaching in a, not in a Sunday school class, that would never happen in a Sunday school class, but when you're teaching somewhere else, right, and they, and they haven't read that material, they think, well, if I just talk enough, people are going to think I read it. And the more you talk, the real, more we realize you have no idea what you're talking about. There's your Sunday school lesson for today. If you didn't do the reading, just stop. Right? Just stop. Right? But a fool is concerned with how much they say. But a wise person is concerned with the quality of what they say. They're concerned with the words and the impact and what they mean and how they affect that person that they're talking to. And even as the author is sharing this incredible wisdom with us, we can tell by this that he's still incredibly frustrated with his lack of understanding, with his own lack of wisdom, right? If we go back to chapter 7, verses 23 and 24. Man, that sounds so cool. Page is turning, right? But if we go back and we look at verses 23, the author writes this, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep and very deep, who can find it out? And if we go to verse 5 of chapter 10, to stay where you are, I'll read it to you. It says, this is evil that I have seen under the sun as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Right? Oh, maybe, maybe this God just messed up on everything. The one who is sovereign, he has made these mistakes. And as we read these verses, it seems as if the whole book of Ecclesiastes may end in failure. That wisdom is going to mean nothing, that the author is looking for wisdom that he cannot find and his quest has failed and it's all over and he's, he's unable to explain the purpose of life or explain why everything matters. And that's where we find ourselves. And at this junction in the book, at this place, at these chapters, we really have two choices that we can make. We can believe that wisdom ends with us. Right, we can believe that if I don't know how or where or why or if I don't understand, then it never happened. Right? We even say now, if I don't understand, it's not true. For somehow we believe that we are the end of wisdom. And that's one route we can take. I'll give you a preview. That's a fool. The next route that we can take is that true wisdom begins with God. Right? The true wisdom begins with God. And if there's something that we don't understand, then maybe we're just not that smart. Right? The wise option is to admit that, that we don't have all the answers, right? but we trust that God does. This is the way of humility. This is a demonstration of our faith in our lives. What John Calvin, he once called it this. He said, that is a learned ignorance. Right? That is a learned ignorance. The more we know the more we learn how much we don't know. Right? The more 
we study, the more we, we learn, we realize, I really don't know what's going on in this place. Right? I re- and we, we have this learned ignorance. We try so hard so we can understand the meaning of life. But we should also be content to confess that there are some parts of life that we don't understand. There are some parts in the heavenly universe that we don't know. I, this is going to be a shocker for some of you, but you're not as smart as God. Right? That, that, that God is way, way smarter. God knows what is going on. God actually created your, your brain. Right? And, and we just have to submit to that and understand that there are just some things that we aren't going to know. There was a debate. This is actually, there's a debate between two um, Christians. I'm not even going to say the names. They are well-known apologists and studying. They have brains as, as big as this room, and they were going to have this debate on um, the, the origins of earth, and they were going to have it on new earth versus old earth. And there was supposed to be this big debate, and there was a guy that I knew who is really, really smart. You know that new telescope that just went out into space that makes the Hubble look like a backyard telescope? He was the project manager on that, and he is a Christian, and he loves Jesus. And I said, hey, are you going to watch this debate? It was a two-hour debate. And he looked at me and said, what are those two idiots going to talk about for two hours? And I thought, oh my gosh, right? There's always somebody smarter than you, right? This guy knew that like their wisdom had ended. And we know that the limit of wisdom, the limit of our own wisdom is actually part of wisdom, Right? That is a wisdom. The more that we know, the more that we should realize how little that we know and whatever wisdom we have, whatever wisdom we have gained, whatever wisdom God has revealed to us in Scripture is a gift from God himself. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he had this very popular saying that he didn't come up with. He stole this quote from, he didn't steal it. People gave him credit for it. But Benjamin Franklin said it. Right? And this is the quote. It says, the doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. The doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. And it is this remark, it is this understanding that puts us in our proper place and helps us to know that where the pursuit of wisdom begins. Right? We, we are not the end-all, be-all. When, when we come to the end of our knowledge, we are just starting to understand something. We are not as wise as we think we are. And if we're honest with ourselves and we are humble before God, we have to confess that we're not always wise with our time. We're not always wise with the events that we go to. We're, we're not always wise in how we respond to trials. We know that we're not wise in the words that we speak. And if we want to get any wiser, we need to start by admitting our foolishness. We need to start by admitting our folly. And only then, then and only then, will we be ready to grow in the wisdom of God. Only then will we be able to grow in wisdom. I want you to look with me at verses 25 through 29 of chapter 7. Uh, verse 25, he says, I, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. 
and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and those hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, that while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that, that God made him upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Here's what this is teaching us, that there is not a lot of wisdom out there. Right? This is when people say, oh, he said that there was one man and a woman. He's not comparing men and women. Um, we can look at some other things in here and say that he was not really hanging out with the cream of the crop of women. Right? And I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. I'm going to quote somebody who said this, so don't get mad at me. But he said that would be like somebody being in the Playboy Mansion and looking around and saying, hey, there's not a lot of smart people here. Right? And so when we look at some of the things he's written, some of the women, he's not hanging out with the upper class of society of women. And so he's not saying male and female. What he's saying is I've got all these people and there's not a whole lot of wisdom here. Right? There's not a whole lot of wisdom available. And wisdom is not native to us. Wisdom is a gift from God. In fact, what is native to us, in fact, the thing that is natural to a heart is to pursue our own desires. Right, one of the scariest things that we read in Scripture is when God says, leave them to the desires of their heart. Right, and they turn from God and they go do. That is not a good thing. And we read this and what they're talking about here is God made our first parents, made Adam and Eve and upright and yet they turned from God. Right, they were crooked. They went on their way. They went, and, they went after their own devices and they traded wisdom for foolishness and we have followed them. We have followed our, our father and our mother, the Adam of our time. And when we look at this, we see that the one conclusion of all of these things, all, all this book that he's writing, when he's searching out wisdom, there's only one conclusion that he is able to draw. And we find it in this verse. It is that God made man upright, but man was not content to remain in their state of uprightness, but instead pursued foolish schemes and rebelled against God. So when he does all this study, he said, God made you righteous, but you turned from that. You rebelled against God, and now you are crooked. And what we know, right, because hindsight, we know a lot, and we know that Jesus came a couple thousand years after this, is that Jesus Christ is the only man who ever remained totally upright. That Jesus Christ is the only man that never sinned, and by virtue of his perfect life and his atoning death, he offers to forgive us for our wicked schemes. Right? He, he forgives us for our foolish ways. And although it is true that many died through one man's trespasses, that's Adam, it is also true that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will live through one man. That's Jesus Christ. Right? So why we died in our sins, why we died in our rebellion through Adam, it is Jesus Christ who came and died so that we could have life. And even if we do not have the, the wisdom to solve the deep mysteries of life or, or to figure out everything, there is to know. Right? We're, we're never going to know everything there is to know in this universe or in this place. But we should be wise enough to see that the deadly sin that is alive in our own hearts. 
And oftentimes, those around us see that deadly sin through the words that we speak. We should be made aware of the meaningless in our own lives and that life without God is meaningless. What the author is saying here is is that that very thing, is that life without God is meaningless, that life without a real saving knowledge and relationship with God is empty. It's meaningless. It's vain. It's foolishness. And as he throws these parables and these proverbs at you, he wants you to feel the weight of that. He wants you to know that that is uh, uh, emptiness that only Jesus Christ can fill. He wants you to make, think hard about your life. He wants you to think hard about your relationship with the Creator. He says that there are all sorts of ways that people attempt to find this meaning and this satisfaction in their lives. That they look everywhere but God. And he argues that they will never find meaning or satisfaction apart from God. He says that some people try to find, they even create meaning in being smart. Not wise, but being smart. They think and they think and they think about these things a lot and they think for themselves. Right? And they think that their thinking will provide meaning to their life. And the author says that's, that's not going to be done. You're never going to grasp wisdom fully. And while demonstrating that all things under the sun are vanity and that the, the proper human response is first and foremost to fear God. And that's the, the message of these Proverbs and that's the, the message of all Ecclesiastes. If you remember, we, week one, we went to the very end. We went to chapter 12. We went to verse 13. And he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. So after all of his argument, after all of his research... He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And it is these Proverbs that are turning us to fear God. We are to reject the folly of this world. We are to reject this idea that we are the end of wisdom. That if we can't make sense of it, that if we don't know, then it just simply is wrong. That it doesn't exist, but instead we're to embrace the wisdom of God. And when we ask, well, what is the wisdom of God? I want to encourage you now. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 18. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And it is in here that Paul answers that question, what is the wisdom of God? Paul writes this. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater at this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signed and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who because became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, wisdom does not begin and end with us. Right? But wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom begins in trusting in Jesus, who is the very wisdom of God. And when we look at Ecclesiastes, when we look at the author, the, the whole point is to drive the reader to that conclusion. The whole point is to drive the reader to God. The whole point is to say, it doesn't matter how smart you are, God is smarter. It doesn't matter how strong you are, God is stronger. It doesn't matter what you think you know, God knows. And it is that frustration and our lack of wisdom that draws us to the one who can actually save us. Church, that is the prayer that I have for this church, and that is the prayer that I have for each of you, that if God is, if you have never embraced the true wisdom of God, which is Jesus himself, I pray that God would grab your hearts and would draw you near to him. I pray that God would reveal his wisdom to you and that you would give your life to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, the, these words. We thank you for this author. We thank you for the challenge in our life, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the frustrations that we find in life when we turn to anything but you. Lord, we pray that we would go to the beginning of wisdom and the the beginning of wisdom would bring us to your feet and we would stop pursuing this emptiness and these anger and these uh, uh, worthless, meaningless things and that we would pursue the one thing that would last forever and that is you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen.